Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Oh, here we're here again. Thank you for being with us. I'm Alan Jones. As you know, this is ADH TV, where you'll get the unvarnished truth. As you might have noticed in the lead up to the New South Wales election, we're already offering you an extended program each night on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So strap yourself in tonight. Though tonight's no different from any other night, we have a hell of a program for you, all relevant to your interests and your concerns. I'll have more to say about this superannuation mess later. But for now, let me say this. I note that the Albanese broken promise in relation to superannuation, no matter the merits of the argument, and it does have merit, it is a broken promise. Because Albanese said this before the election. We've said we have no intention of making any super changes. One of the things that we're doing in this campaign is we're making all of our policies clear. I mean, have words lost their meaning? We have no intention of making any super changes. Now, as I said last night, if Albanese had said before the election that he was going to tax superannuation in any form, he would not have won. Albo has to accept that he has defrauded the electorate. Yet today, the left-wing media, and that's most of them, are celebrating this as a triumph. A broken promise becomes a triumph. Well, unfortunately, some of us have a memory. There has been any amount of debate and headlines in recent weeks about the plight of Medicare, with a budget of about 32 billion a year and rising. Indeed, one headline has said that Medicare is broken and there is no quick fix. You see, this is my twin problem about this lot in Canberra. In October last year, we learned that the Medicare system was being rorted by up to 8 billion a year, $8,000 million. Practitioners ripping off the system and charging for services that were never delivered. Mind you, if you are one of these doctors and paying them $39.65 for a standard consultation on Medicare, that's the rebate, it is fair to argue the doctors are being ripped off. Nevertheless, when Chalmers was told the $8 billion a year, uh, about the $8 billion a year rorting, he went on with the usual Chalmers rhetoric. He's good at this sort of stuff, rhetoric but no delivery, a treasurer on training wheels. So of the $8 billion rorting, he said, it's absolutely atrocious. Every dollar rorted, whether it's from Medicare or the NDIS, is a dollar thieved from people who need and deserve good health care. If you're stealing from Medicare, you are a grub. And he said he wanted a crackdown on people who wrought the Medicare system. He said, it is something we'll get to the bottom of. Crooks do leave footprints. Hmm? So we'll get to the bottom of it, will we? That was October last year. So far, nothing has been done. 
But they're mad about reviews and reports. And the health minister, Mark Butler, early last month released a 12-page Medicare reform plan. I'm telling you this for a reason. But there's no extra funding for GP care, so doctors are not bulk billing. Now, put these two things together, Medicare and broken promises, and it comes to this. Remember the Albanese broken promise, according to his left-wing media mates, is a triumph. And he has supposedly wedged Peter Dutton and the opposition. And that means, how will Dutton refuse to support a fairer taxing system on the earnings of those with more than three million in their super account? As an aside, I think Peter Dutton is wrong to oppose what is being done. He should be hammering the fact that the broken promise is only broken when it applies to the coalition. And Peter Dutton has history on his side, as well as the fact, as I've said repeatedly, if this tax on superannuation had been announced prior to the election, Labor would not have won. Now, the horses would have been frightened. However, a bit of history, and it involves Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton was the health minister in the Abbott government in May 2014. He saw then that Medicare was in trouble, 2014. In New Zealand, there's a Medicare co-payment. It was then 30 bucks. You go to the doctor, you must pay the first 30. Of interest, that co-payment now varies between 15 and $50, a co-payment. As I said, you pay something when you go to the doctor. Now, Peter Dutton in 2014, as health minister, announced in the budget a co-payment of a piddling $7 for visiting the doctor. What would $7 buy you? Not even a sandwich and a cup of coffee. But it hadn't been announced prior to Abbott winning the election. So it was a broken promise. And from one end of the country to the other, the media and the Labor Party screamed accordingly, along with a motley mob in the Senate. Out of the $7, I might add, and Peter Dutton made this point, $5 was to go to the Medical Research Future Fund to provide an opportunity for our researchers, world-class institutes and universities to use that investment to support the health system down the track. But it was a broken promise. And as the Daily Telegraph said at the time, and I quote, the left descends into hair-tearing hysteria at the thought of paying $7 to consult a human being who might save your life, unquote. Albanese is now idealised on a broken promise. Abbott and Dutton demonised in 2014 for announcing a $7 co-payment when you visit the doctor. And now the same Labor Party is screaming that Medicare is broken and there's no quick fix. Chalmers learns of an $8 billion rort and he's done nothing. You work out for yourself what all that means. But there are two uncharitable words that could be used. Dishonesty in the lead up to the election and hypocrisy nine years ago on a Medicare co-payment. Now, I spoke last night also about the banks. Remember I told you when the interest rates were cut between June 2019 and November 2020 by 1.4%, the banks only gave you about half of the benefit of that cut. You were ripped off. But as I said, when the Reserve Bank started last May raising interest rates, now by 3.25%, every rate hike was passed on to the consumer. That perhaps is why the Commonwealth Bank says it's anticipating half yearly cash profits of more than $5 billion. The result of the steep increases in interest rates, you paying the bank more for your mortgage. Now, I don't mind profit. It's the only way you can get investors and it's the only way you can pay wages. 
but customers shouldn't come last. Well, now we're being told that the New South Wales election could be won or lost on what major parties are promising by way of help to struggling renters. Well, I'll tell you something. All that those struggling renters will get from either party is rhetoric. The reason rents are where they are is that people can't afford to buy a house or they're unable to buy. If you can't afford to buy a house, it's because there aren't enough houses for people waiting to buy. So the lack of supply means the price goes up. That's just common sense. Why is there no supply? Now he's blaming the Labor Party and asking what Chris Minns will do. He is not the government. This government's been there for 12 years. And though the architects of the red tape dedicated to all this green nonsense, which just keeps developers on the back foot. Barry O'Farrell became Premier in 2011. I interviewed him the following Monday. I told him, in the light of the then housing crisis, that I could introduce him to four reputable developers who could solve the housing crisis because they were shovel ready and couldn't navigate their way through the red tape. Premier O'Farrell said, Alan, send them to Brad, as in Brad Hazard. He was the planning minister. I did. Those developers, 12 years on, are still shovel ready. Hence the housing crisis and people forced to rent. I spoke to two young ladies in the last week, both renting in modest accommodation, approximately $560 a week. One received an email to say that her rent would be going up by $165 a week, another by $200 a week. And as they said to me, they have to pay because hundreds are queuing up, seeking a roof over their head. They got nowhere else to go. These same renters with astronomical increases have also experienced increases in their energy bills. Yet Dominic Perrottet says he'll announce further support for renters before the election. Dom, where have you been for the last any number of years? You were the treasurer, now you're the premier. It's okay for rents to be without notice, and I might add without justification, jacked up by $200 a week or 33 and a third percent. Come on. It prompts the age-old truism, doesn't it? Never have governments been so big, so bloated, and so useless. I just made the, report, the point, and I repeated, Anthony Albanese's tax on superannuation is apparently a triumph, even though a broken promise. But when Tony Abbott rightly wanted to introduce a Medicare co-payment in 2014, Peter Dutton as health minister, they screamed from the rafters, broken promise, and the Labor Party and their left-wing support in the Senate rejected it. Indeed, it didn't even get to the Senate. Abbott had to withdraw the commitment. But now a broken promise is a triumph. Well, I've got news for you. As I said last night, it ain't even started on super. There is Chalmers yesterday telling us that tax breaks on superannuation are worth more than $50 billion. And the overall revenue foregone, he's whinging and complaining due to concessional tax rates. He means negative gearing, you see, and capital gains, look out. Total $150 billion. They want to get their hands on it. If there's no negative gearing, there'd be fewer houses in the market for people to rent. And lower taxes, called concessional taxes on super, are designed to encourage people to plan for their retirement and make them less dependent on the pension. This uncertainty about a government going after money that is not theirs is, mark my words, electoral death. Watch this pan out in the Aston by-election. But let me take this superannuation issue tonight to a step in a different direction. So, you want to reform super? Well, let me tell my viewers a few unpalatable truths. 
Who's managing your super? Labor's Wayne Swan is chair of the super fund giant CBUS. Last year for his efforts, $110,000 out of your super money. Greg Combay, a former union official and front bench colleague of Wayne Swan. He's chaired Industry Super Australia since 2018. He's raking in a big salary out of your super money. Labor's Nicola Roxon resigned from politics at the 2013 election. She's chair of HESTA, a super fund for workers in health and community service. Last year, she reportedly earned $184,000 out of your super money. Nick Sherry was the assistant treasurer in the Rudd-Gillard governments. He's chairman of the Transport Super Fund, TWS Super. The previous chairman was on $295,000 out of your super money. And that talking about reform, Yet here is your superannuation money being paid to unions in fees and to Labor people who sit on the boards. Plus, in the five years to 2019, $429 million was spent, your money, by the industry super sector on advertising and marketing. Then 23 of the nation's leading industry funds paid $9.8 million of your superannuation money in 2019-20 on directors' fees, sponsorships and major deals with the unions. 9.8 million industry superannuation fund payments to trade unions have almost doubled in five years. Your superannuation money is handed over. 10 million in 2019-20. For example, First Super covers workers in the timber industry. It gave two and a bit million to the CFMEU. CBUS established for construction workers over $1 million given to the unions. These monies are declared to the Australian Electoral Commission, but the fact is your superannuation money is being used for products and services allegedly, and the providers are mostly unions. According to the Australian Electoral Commission's Transparency Register, the CFMEU collected over 4 million, almost 5 million, from your super funds in 2019-20. But if you think it can't get worse, think again. Because you then, you see, have politicians and public servants superannuation. Is it gonna be taxed? You see, the rules were changed for public servants in 1990 and for federal politicians in 2005. People who entered parliament before 2004 were part of the parliamentary contributory superannuation scheme. I mean, basically you stuck money in, the politicians stuck money in and the taxpayer matched the dough. <laughs> Good deal. Mark Latham was the person who said this has to stop. But the least an MP on that old scheme can receive is 50% of their annual pay if they served eight years in the parliament, but then there's an additional 2.5% of their pay on top of that for each year served. And if the MP has spent 18 or more years in parliament, they automatically get 75% of their salary based on the highest office they held during their career. 75% say of ministerial role. Anthony Albanese has been in the parliament for 27 years. He's part of this rort. He'd be entitled to a base pension of about 163,000 per annum base because he served more than 18 years. But if you factor in his position as prime minister, former opposition leader, former minister, his annual pension superannuation will be well over $400,000 when he goes. Wayne Swan, well over 300,000. Yet Wayne Swan, in an exercise of extraordinary hypocrisy, 
has backed the case for no concessional tax on earnings from super over three million. He said, quote, if you have three million in a super account, you don't need generous tax concessions. This is a bloke who's the beneficiary of generous taxpayer funded super, who's most probably on, as I said, a pension of $300,000. Now, to qualify for that, he would need in the current scheme, six million in pension assets. Now remember, after three million, double tax. He'd need six million if he only got a 5% return. So if he wants the concessional tax to cut out at three million, how do the same rules apply to him and all of his cronies bleating about how much these concessions cost? I repeat, the combined cost of parliamentary and public service defined benefit schemes, and the defined benefit scheme was the old scheme whereby you were entitled at the end of your service to a percentage of your final average salary. So of course, if you're the prime minister, I mean, the percentage was rock high. So people like Wayne Swan and Anthony Albanese are beneficiaries. The combined cost of public servants and politicians, your money will be nearly 13 billion in 20 years time. Now, by all means, put a cap on the amount, which cap is now 3 million, for which you can gain a concessional tax rate. After that, as you heard yesterday, the tax is doubled, no problem. But what is sickening is that we are being preached to by people in the Labor Party who've got their snouts heavily in the taxpayers' trough. Whether they've got their mates as high salaried directors of these super funds, or whether their union mates get all sorts of payments from your super funds, and all up, there's over $30 billion in fees and charges each year taken from your superannuation money. 30 billion, $30,000 million. Yet the same mob are talking about superannuation reform. Tax some, but keep your snout in the taxation trough for yourself. I'll tell you something. I'll keep it this to the point of boredom until some honesty prevails. Yesterday, we learned, as I told you, that state and territory debt has doubled to 540 billion since the pandemic began and elections in New South Wales and Queensland have caused an erosion of spending discipline. I talked about this last night. I'll tell you what, you can say that again, an erosion of spending discipline. The Standard & Poor's analyst, Martin Fu, said in a report on Monday that such debt, this is just state and territories, not Commonwealth, such debt could reach 600 billion by 2024. The figures are mind-boggling. Net debt in Victoria is about 116 billion. Net debt in New South Wales, 115 billion, which led one economics writer following the release of that appalling state budget last year in New South Wales to argue, quote, New South Wales's cash splash budget is reckless at a time of surging government borrowing costs and soaring inflation. He wrote, it's gobsmacking that a usually principled and conservative Premier Dominic Perrottet has allowed this spendathon to occur, unquote. And it went on in the Financial Review newspaper, and I quote, Treasurer Matt Keane's first budget defies traditional liberal rhetoric on responsible budget management, unquote. The Commonwealth picture? Well, gross debt there is almost a trillion dollars. That's after the spendathon during the pandemic. Net debt, almost 800 billion. But of course, when it comes to the so-called green revolution, none of this matters. Amongst the reckless spending in the New South Wales budget, where the government's deficit has gone from 2.8 billion to 6.5 billion, that's simply spending more than you can get in. But the Treasurer, Matt Keane, is also the Energy Minister. 
So a budget provision of 10 billion, 10,000 million on so-called green energy programs. As I've said, to reduce global surface temperatures by decimal point naught, 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 and you can add as many noughts as you like. And on top of that, this electric vehicle obsession, $3,000 rebates for the first 25,000 new battery electric, electric and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, batteries. No word as to what we do with them, but they have to be replaced, 500 kgs each. Perhaps we dig holes in the ground to dispose of 2.5 million tonnes of battery waste. But don't worry, Mr Keane says electric vehicles will make up 50% of new car sales by 2030. 50%. But most studies show that yes, electric cars will increase in sales, but they won't take over the world. In fact, the International Energy Agency says that by 2030, and I quote, if all countries live up to their promises, the world will have 140 million electric cars on the road, 7% of the global vehicle fleet, 7%. But not Matt Keane. He says he's going to build 30,000 new charging stations. Well, thank God people like Professor Judith Sloan exist. She has an extraordinary CV, a university professor at Flinders University and the Curtin Institute of Technology, an honorary professorial fellow at the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research within the University of Melbourne. She's been a commissioner on the Federal Government's Productivity Commission and the Australian Fair Pay Commission. She's been on the boards of several companies, including Maine Nicholas, SGIO Insurance, Santos, and Chair of Prime Life. She was a Federal Government appointment to the Australian Constitutional Convention in 1998, and she writes regularly and outstandingly for the Australian newspaper and The Spectator. She's also, I might add, a contributing essayist to the publication Australia Tomorrow, with a splendid essay there that you should read on population and immigration. Compulsory reading, preferably though by government. Australia Tomorrow, that's an anthology of essays with policy prescriptions for what we should be doing. But Professor Judith Sloan joins me. Judith, simple question to start with. Thank you for your time, by the way. What the hell are we doing? Bowen, the energy minister, says he wants to prohibit fossil fuel cars by 2030, which would effectively forbid 87% of consumers from buying the car they want. Well, Alan, of course, um, what they say and what happens are different things. And it's certainly true if you look overseas, there are a few countries and a few parts of countries that are making the same kind of pledges. I think even Boris Johnson, grown here, uh, I think he was trying to get uh, petrol and diesel cars off the road by maybe 2030, uh, 2035. California, definitely. Um, but... I mean, I think for a variety of reasons that won't happen. But I think the more interesting point in a way is what is the thinking, what is the mindset behind the promotion of electric vehicles when there are actually a lot of downsides from them uh, as well, I guess, as potential upsides? I mean, I don't understand these figures that are being trotted out. I mentioned in the intro um, estimates by the International Energy Agency, 7% of global vehicles, 7%, which will make no impact basically on these so-called emissions. But before we get down to your very strong arguments, how do these electric vehicle proponents like Bowen and Keane 
reconcile the fact that electric cars require large batteries, often produced in China, using coal-fired power, and the electric cars recharged on electricity that almost everywhere is significantly fossil fuel-based. So if Chalmers and co are wanting to tax superannuation to drag in some money, why shouldn't politicians stop writing cheques with our money just because they believe with no proof that electric cars are a major climate solution? Well, yes, I think you're, I mean, the point is that we know that electric vehicles are very emissions intensive to construct, right? Uh, they're probably up to four times more emissions intensive to construct than a normal vehicle, right? And so what that tells you is that uh, an electric vehicle has to travel maybe up to 100,000 kilometres before it actually is more emissions effective That's right. than a normal car. Right? I mean, the thing is, I mean, I think you tend to make the mistake, and I know I do, is that we try and bring facts to this debate, but it's the vibe, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the vibe is electric I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to interrupt you there for a minute. This lady, I've got to tell you, she might be a professor, but she has a wonderful sense of humour. We both make the mistake of trying to bring facts, facts to the debate. So I'll go on, Judith. Now, it's very clear from overseas that what has driven electric vehicles and the truth is they won't suit a whole lot of people and they won't suit a whole lot of people particularly in Australia because Australia is a far fun place <clears throat> but incentives will drive people to buy them I mean what tends to happen in countries and we're going to have that you get cash you get you know rebates on your red joe you know, in some countries, you're allowed to use the bus lanes, toll-free car, free car parking. Now, um, Finland is often pointed out as the sort of poster girl uh, for electric vehicle uptake. But when you start to look at the details, I mean, basically people are paid about $20,000 Australian to buy one. But here's the point. They're taxed about fifteen thousand if they want to buy um, an ordinary petrol car. So, is it surprising that electric vehicles have gone gangbusters in Finland? No, no. Um, but actually, the overseas evidence shows you that the minute the the incentives are withdrawn, the demand falls off. People actually are not off, are not always buying them because they want to save the planet. They just want to save some dollars for their bank balance. Yes. But what about Bowen? Now, Bowen is saying he's giving, I quote his words, quote, giving Australians better access to options which allow them to never lift the, the nozzle on a petrol pump again. Now, we don't want to be uncharitable, Judith, but that's simply not the truth. Are the electorate fooled by this stuff? Well, I think just there are so many complications. So, um, of course, another really important point is that the subsidies are highly regressive because in Australia in particular, I mean, the cost of an electric vehicle is considerably more than a petrol vehicle, right? Um, so basically governments are handing out money for people on higher incomes. So that's generally not what we like to do. But here's the point, a lot of people with electric vehicles will have a second vehicle 
So they have an ordinary vehicle. So in the event of them wanting to go any distance, they'll use that because um, it can be a complete nightmare trying to find appropriate charging stations and available charging stations if you want to go for any length of time. They're fine to, you know, uh, flit around the, the city, generally speaking. And if you have a garage and three-phase power, you can charge it at home, right? But actually most people, and this is one of the issues, for example, in the UK, uh, as you will know, about two-thirds of households do not have a garage, right, yeah. because, you know, they live in terrace houses, right? So they can't charge their electric vehicles from home. And there's been a complete brouhaha because people are getting out their extension cords and running it over the footpath to try and charge up their cars. Now, that actually is very unsafe for a variety of reasons. <laughs> um, but people, you know... You know it, it's just madness. The See, the vibe, the vibe doesn't kind of take into account the practicalities, and there are an awful lot of practicalities associated with rolling yeah. out electric vehicles. Well, let's just come, let's come to China, because China got to be laughing at us, haven't they? I mean, they've cornered the market, and you've made this point in a brilliant piece you wrote recently. Firstly, they've cornered the market on solar panels. And now, as you say, they now want to corner the market on electric vehicle batteries. Over 90% of all battery production at the moment is in China. Now, we've been down this track before, but we seem to have learned nothing because the Chinese companies are trying to lock up the supply. And you've made this point, and I've made it before, of the vital elements of batteries, lithium and cobalt and copper and all that stuff. So, Judith, what's the potential for China leaving us stranded by, via some retaliatory behaviour? Yes, and I mean, it's not just the batteries that they want to lock up. It's actually electric vehicle manufacturers as well. But as you say, they are emissions intensive to produce and they basically are using coal-fired power. And I don't know if you've noticed recently, but there's been some reports that China's sort of actually at the point of accelerating its construction of more coal-fired power stations. Yes, definitely. Because... Yep. They don't want to be caught short of, of power in any way. Mm -hmm. So um, they'll say one thing on the international stage, but uh, there, there is, I think, a, a reality going on. I mean, Britain, again, mentioning Boris Johnson, who was a, a lovely guy in many ways, but an absolutely hopeless prime minister. <laughs> um, he, you know, had this great vision for some major battery factory in Britain. I think it was called going to be called Brit Batteries. It was somewhere up in Northumberland or something. And, it, you know, the trouble is you cannot compete against the Chinese with that sort of thing. And mm. as you say, unless you've locked up the the uh, mineral component of them, um, you're in real trouble. Mm, absolutely. The other thing is that, I mean, there are lots of other things about them. I mean, first of all, they're very heavy. And because of yeah, that... Yeah, 500 um, kgs. The electric... The electric vehicles create a lot of damage to the roads. Yeah, yes, and then of course we also the... don't know how, how do long with... they last. Well, what do you do with the batteries when they're no longer good? Where, well, where do you trying... bury the? Oh. Where do you put the? Well, I this... just want to come to you. Come to another point here, and you have a shot at motoring journalists, and rightly so. You say they've been captured by the various interests associated with electric vehicles. What about the argument that the motoring journalist writes that Tesla is now our largest selling car now? You've made the point 
that it might be within the category of mid-sized sedans, which no one really buys these days. So Tesla sold 11,000 vehicles. Judas made all these points. Too smart for all these people, she is. Tesla sold 11,000 vehicles in 2022. That's out of 1.1 million vehicles sold. That's 1% of all sales. So we're being fed all this nonsense. And I suppose, Judith, the public believe it. Yeah, no, look, that was a disgrace. I mean, I guess it just shows you what a cynic I am. But, like, I read this headline that said, Tesla, largest um, seller of cars in Australia. And I thought, you know, really? That that doesn't sound right. And then, you know, you read down and it's like, well, within the category of medium-sized sedans, which no one wants, and they are even outselling the Toyota Camry, which no one wants, Um so, look, don't get me wrong, I kind of have a bit of admiration for Tesla in a way, but um, I think that... Yeah, but it's uh, not... Australia's a big no, country. It's not practical. I'll come to that in a moment. I just want to... I'll come to that in a moment about the impracticality of all this in Australia and charging stations and so on. But Matthew Keane, I want to clear this one up with you. He says electric vehicles will be 50% of new car sales by 2050. Professor Judith Sloan, what do you say to that? Well, it's, it won't happen at all. And, I mean, he's just trying to talk his political book, isn't he? Um, I mean, you know, think about when cars uh, started to become common. Do you think the government so, uh, bought uh, or, you know, subsidised uh, petrol stations? That's right. That's no. Right. That's no. right. No. I mean, it's a really funny idea, actually. Yes, it is. But just on, um, just on these charging stations, I mean, you wrote about this, and some owners were waiting up to 90 minutes and this emotional argument, mm. it wasn't terrible, it was a hot day and there were toddlers in the back seat. So off they go, off they go uh, with the argument to government, uh, and you just made this point when we were powering with petrol. They didn't provide any subsidies to the petrol station or whatever. So sure enough, Matthew Keane says they'll build 30,000 new charging stations. What's the government doing building charging stations with our money? Well, the interesting thing is that we've had a sort of lesson in that from California because they've gone off. Yep. And, uh, and the government has uh, funded charging stations. But you know, as all these things happen, you know, public, uh, like remember public uh, phone booths, at any time in California, about a third of those charging stations are out of order uh, because, of course, people don't look after them, right, you know? Um, or I, I don't know whether they're particularly fault-prone, but, you know, it's a real issue there. Um, but, you know, I love the, 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 the motoring journalists because you can read these pieces. I mean, look, I think they're quite fun to drive, some of the electric vehicles, <laughs> I, I might add. You know, you, you're a bit of an expert in that, aren't you, Alan? And they've got very good talk or whatever. But uh, hang on, um, hang on. So today, for example, today... You and I might go from Sydney to Brisbane. You've made this point. You fill up the car with petrol, perhaps stop at Coffs Harbour for a coffee and a refill, yeah. and away you go. Now, a motor is seriously saying that they'll go to Brisbane in an electric vehicle. Maximum range, 300 and a bit kilometres. Stop at a charging station where there's a queue. Now, even if we're only five. Now, I understand the Tesla supercharger 
can give you 300 kilometres of charge in 15 minutes. But that's the best deal generally. Most yep. of the charging yep. times are an hour or more. So if you're a little teal out there that loves all this sort of stuff in the eastern suburbs, driving your Jaguar, and you want a 50 kilowatt charge, it'll take you an hour and 40 minutes. Pity the poor bugger standing in the queue behind you. And then if you want the Mercedes Benz, well, hang on, an hour and 35 minutes. There's still six or seven in the queue behind you. And it depends on what charge you want. So a Tesla Model 3, even if you want 120 kilowatts charge, that'll take you 45 minutes. So if there are three people in front of you and the battery's flat, Judith, what do you do? Hang around for two hours. No thanks. What? You book a motel room. But I think the thing is that, um, you know, a few stories have been allowed to creep out about, you know, disastrous uh, journeys with electric vehicles, including a very funny one in the Times, I would think, in the UK. Because once they, once they, um, once the battery runs out entirely, it just stops at which point you have to get towed, right? So there's no possibility like <laughs> we used to do, you know, going down and get the jerry can and topping up the tank. And it's it's an expensive thing to have towed because it's so heavy, right? Um, no, no, I think, uh, I think the practicalities are... And you see, it's the physics of the battery because people say, oh, well, why don't you, why don't we create fast charging batteries? The, the trouble at the moment is that the faster you charge a battery, the more rapid is the deterioration of the battery, right? That's the problem. Mm -hmm. So until they can kind of overcome the physics of the problem, this sort of idea of being able to charge up like uh, your petrol car, which is, you know, it's yeah. about, I reckon, I filled up my car the other day, I reckon it was about two or three minutes, you know. Amazing. Go in and pay, but, but just and off you go, you know. I know, but just come, this is all environmental, right? Everything is about the environment. So come back to the point I, you made about 10 minutes ago about the manufacture of these vehicles. Now, I, you and I have made this point a hundred times. You say they're only of environmental benefit after they've been driven for what, 100,000 kilometres because the manufacturer, yeah, oh, yeah, the manufacturer of the electric vehicle is much more emission intensive than the manufacturer yeah. of the normal car. I mean, you've made the point yeah. that electric vehicles require what, six times more mining than other vehicles. And then there's the battery problem, which we're not told about, the life of the batteries, the cost of replacing mm -hmm. them. When are we going to get a bit of common yeah, sense well, in all of this? Yeah, no, the car manufacturers are very naughty about that because they won't tell you what the cost of the battery replacement it is. And, I mean, I think oftentimes at that point the cost of replacing the battery is worth more than the whole car, you That's know. It. So That's correct. Um, That's yeah, right. No. So, look, I think it, it's really a, 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 an important issue. But it's, you know, it, again, it's the vibe. It's the fact that, you know, there's no tailgate emissions, Alan. So, you know, that's what they concentrate on. But if you're going to be genuine about this, you have to take whole of cycle, the whole of cycle. So, yep. you know, from the point of... of Production, of that's it. Inputs, Production, driving, replacing the battery. Replacing the battery. Viewers, I've got to tell you, heard Professor Sloan. She's forgotten more than Keen and Bowen would know. She made that point. The battery to be replaced, tens of thousands of dollars. Sometimes dearer 
than the damn car you're driving. Look, I'm sorry, can I ask you this simple question? Do Keane and Bowen know what they're talking about? Well, I think they're politicians, aren't they? And I think it's, you know, the the electric vehicle has a vibe in the kind of voters they want to attract. Although, you know, I mean, out in the regions and, you know, you're sort of, uh, you know, have hung out in the regions a lot. I mean, you you some ask someone in their Toyota Hilux or their Ute or their, um, you know, truck about electric vehicles and they'll think you're nuts. Yeah, they just laugh at you. <laughs> well, 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 one final question to you, because you've done a lot of work on this. Viewers want to know from you. That's why I read out your CV, because you know what you're talking about. How serious should our viewers take these arguments that petrol and diesel cars will be banned? Uh, these electric vehicles, as you said before, are infinitely dearer. But if we ban, 87% of drivers would prefer the petrol and the diesel car. Are they going to be prevented from buying the car that they want? I mean, what kind of show are we tell telling here? Government telling telling the consumer, the voter, what car they must have. I mean, is this legit? Well, I think, you know, come, come closer to the date, it will alter. But, you know, the thing is, it's what I call a stock and a flow problem. So even if they ban new car sales at a certain point, people will hang on to their petrol cars. I'm telling you what I'm going to do if they keep going with it. It's in that year before the you know, deadline comes, I'm going to go and buy a very long-lasting petrol car and I'm going to drive it for the rest of my life, you know, so, you know, they can all stuff off, you know. But, I mean, I'm sure my, I mean, my attitude is this is the kind of intrusion into our lives which is yep. way too yep. common. I yep. And, you know, the pandemic was such a bad precedent yep. on that level. Absolutely. Um, they, think, they think they can get away with it. Yep. But I think you'll find... There's going to be a lot of weasel words come that mm. come closer to the yeah, target. This is, go, well, this is totalitarian stuff, and I won't talk to you about superannuation. Can I just point out at the moment, there are no mechanics for the electric vehicles, so yeah. that's a kind of another constraint at yes. the moment. So yeah. Well, it, we've got this controlling our lives. I mean, there's now talk that the government, uh, Chalmers, uh, on his training wheels, wants to tell superannuation funds, $3 billion, trillion dollars of them, how they should invest. But that's that's a story with you and I for another day. I just want to end by sharing with, with my viewers the very interesting quote that you offered when you quoted the president of the Toyota Motor Corporation, Akio Toyota, expressing reservations about electric vehicles. Now, you make the point that Toyota has gone long on hybrid cars, which the electric yep. vehicle lobbyist hates. But as you say, Mr. Toyota is essentially posing the question, will most customers really want to buy an electric vehicle? Professor Judith Sloan, what do you think? Yes, he was uh, a bit of an outlier. Sadly, he's now retired. But um, yes, no, there's yeah, the hybrids have done very well, by the way. Um, yep. Uh, because it's sort of a bit of an in-between issue and they're much more convenient. Um, uh, and he's been sort of shunned in the electric vehicle lobby group. Um, but I think, you know, his thinking is absolutely right. And, you know, remember 
um, many years ago there was the sort of VHS versus beta yes. uh, technology yes. dispute. Yes. And a lot of people said, oh, well, beta is so much better and stuff. Yes, but actually a lot of people lost their shirts over that. Yes. So this is, seems to me that, I mean, but it's also a philosophical change. You know, in the past we would have thought, consumer requirements, consumer demand, consumer needs should drive these things. Now it's sort of, well, you know, let's look to the government and see and take our marching orders from that. Yes. And that, I think, is a terrible development. Absolutely. Judith, I think the place is being run by mad people, but I thank you for your sanity. <laughs> and to my viewers, to my viewers, I say this, wouldn't we be listening to Judith Sloan before we took any notice of Chris Bowen or Matt Keane? It's a pity the corporate world couldn't accept the same advice. Judith, great to talk to you, and we'll talk again. There's plenty to talk about, but thank you for your time tonight. Pleasure, Alan. There you are. Isn't that instructive? Professor Judith Sloan. Much has been said and written in relation to the one-year anniversary last Friday, February 24, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It is horrific that in a so-called civilised world, we have to witness this. As I've said many times, there are 195 nations in the world, and here we have one nation in an unapologetic, illegal and abominable course of action against one of its neighbours, Ukraine. There's no doubt that Putin is a butcher, and there is equally no doubt that democracy in Ukraine is far from being real. Zelensky, portrayed as a hero, is also the man who has banned a Christian faith in his country and arrested nuns and priests. Nonetheless, there is historical background to what's going on. It is conceded that the harshness of the Treaty of Versailles helped create the conditions for the rise of Hitler. But so saying, that doesn't make you a Hitler apologist. On February 9, 1990, the US Secretary of State was James Baker. He then assured Mikhail Gorbachev, the then leader of the Soviet Union, that NATO would expand, quote, not one inch eastward unquote. There were multiple assurances from the US, the UK, French and German leaders against NATO expansion. Gorbachev explained in his book, In a Changing World, that, quote, NATO's enlargement to the east, this is after he left office, NATO's enlargement to the east violated the spirit of the agreements reached during Germany's unification and undermined the multiple trust that had been built through arduous efforts, unquote. Gorbachev's successor, Boris Yeltsin, wrote in October 1993, and I quote, the spirit of the treaty of the final settlement with respect to Germany precludes, that means prevents, the option of expanding the NATO zone into the East, unquote. That leads to the legit legitimate question. Has the breach of these commitments given to Gorbachev and Yeltsin inspired Putin to undertake the current course of action. That does not excuse it. But nonetheless, when you've got talk of Finland and Sweden joining NATO and Ukraine a de facto member of NATO, then NATO is seemingly in breach of the commitment given in 1990 to Gorbachev that NATO would expand, quote, not one inch eastward. Indeed, when the former CIA director, William Burns, became the ambassador to Moscow, he wrote in a memo in 1995, and I quote, hostility to NATO expansion is almost universally felt across the domestic political spectrum here. That was in Russia. So has all this led to the Russian narrative 
that America were maximizing their strength in Europe at the cost of Russian interests and in breach of agreed undertakings to Russia. So where are I today? Well, firstly, some find it uncomfortable to admit, but when Trump was president, we didn't hear a squeak from the rocket man in North Korea, Xi in China or Putin in Russia. Trump goes and all hell breaks loose. But now the universal view within the West seems to be that defeating the Russians in Ukraine, as the Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell has said, I'm going to try to help explain to the American people that defeating the Russians in Ukraine is the single most important event going on in the world right now, unquote. And that's a view argued by people like Boris Johnson, acknowledging that Putin's war has cost the lives of at least 60,000 Russian troops. Boris Johnson argues that Putin has failed that, quote, the seemingly unstoppable force of the Russian military is breaking on the immovable object of Ukrainian resistance, unquote. And Boris says, quote, we must accelerate Western support for the Ukrainians and give them what they need to finish the job, unquote. Writes Boris Johnson, the Ukrainians have shown that they can do it. They have the energy and the courage to sweep Putin from their lands, and they have the inestimable psychological advantage that they're fighting for hearth and home. He says with the right tools, including more long-range long artillery, they can punch through the land bridge, cut off Crimea, and deal a knockout blow to Russian forces, unquote. Boris continues, we should designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, placing that country where it rightly belongs on a list including Iran, Cuba, North Korea, and Syria, unquote. Now, there'd be few in the Western world today who would disagree with that. Indeed, our own leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, wrote splendidly about this recently, that victory for Ukraine, quote, could be hastened by mobilizing the minds of the world, by securing the support of nations. He quoted Zelensky that there is, quote, no such thing as a foreign war, that evil can overcome any distance and any barriers, that evil becomes possible, quote, when people choose not to notice. Now, the rhetoric is easy, but when you contemplate some reports, and you can see the pictures there, that Russian casualties may be at least 180,000 dead, and the Ukraine toll between 80,000 and 100,000, then something is seriously wrong with the world. In Ukraine, although there is no conscription, men of military age, 18 to 50, have not been allowed to leave Ukraine since the start of the war. And last month, Mr. Zelensky increased the penalty for desertion to 12 years in prison. Richard Barons, the former chief of the UK Joint Forces Command, has said that Ukraine needs to keep 200,000 soldiers in the field to defend the 2,600 kilometre border across which the war is being fought, 2,600 kilometres. And Barron said, quote, given that the rate of casualties on a really bad day is 200 to 300 kill, you begin to see how many would be needed to replenish this, unquote. It is true that Kremlin officials were reportedly so confident of victory when Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago that the generals were told to pack their medals and their dress uniforms for the victory parades in Kiev only weeks away. Well, that hasn't happened. And now it's being asked how the next stage of the war is unfolding. Now today, Zelensky said today, quote, the US will have to send their sons and daughters exactly the same way 
as we are sending our sons and daughters to war because it is NATO that we're talking about and they will be dying, unquote. This is heavy duty stuff, which brings us to China and its 12 point plan for a ceasefire. Don't be deceived. China has been propping up the Russian economy since this began. Trade between China and Russia hit a new record high in 2022, up 30% to $190 billion. The West wasn't, wasn't having Russia's crude oil, don't worry. China bought $50.6 billion worth of crude oil from Russia from March to December, up 45% from the same period the previous year. Coal imports from Russia surged $54 billion. Natural gas purchases up 155%. Russia needs new customers because its fossil fuels were shunned by the West. China wants cheap energy to power its manufacturing industry. Russia has spent billions buying machinery, electronics, base metals, vehicles, ships and aircraft from China. America knows this. So while China hasn't offered direct support to Russia's war, it has provided significant strategic support. And Russia needs to find substitutes for its imports from Western markets, such as cars and electronics. Chinese car brands have seen their market share in Russia surge from 10% to 38% following the exit of Western brands. So it goes on. China's 12 point peace document is merely an effort to present itself as a neutral peace broker. But China's neutrality has been severely undermined by its refusal to acknowledge the nature of the conflict. It has avoided calling it an invasion, and it's provided diplomatic and economic support from Moscow. And despite claiming its 12-point peace plan that, quote, sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of all countries must be effectively upheld, unquote, the document fails to acknowledge Russia's violation of Ukrainian sovereignty. But what does it mean at the end of the day that America has gone in so overwhelmingly in support of Ukraine and its war with Russia. Well, back to Trump. When he was president, the bureaucrats were telling him to keep his distance from Putin. Trump would dismiss them by saying, why would we fight Russia? Wouldn't making Russia our enemy drive Putin into the arms of China and create the most powerful and dangerous anti-American bloc in history? Trump posed the question repeatedly. If Russia ever joined forces with China, America's power would end instantly. You would have Russia, the world's largest land mass, with the world's largest natural gas reserves, allied with China, the world's largest population, and the world's largest economy. Is this where we're heading? I think it's dangerous territory. Such a union would have the scale to control a lot of the world's economy, trade routes, and raw materials. As Trump argued correctly, if Russia and China ever get together, it will be a brand new world. Perhaps even people with great minds like Boris Johnson understand that, and that may be why the argument is being mounted that perhaps at all costs, Putin must be defeated. But Russia and China together most probably have other ideas. That being the case, the West may be in trouble. Well, David Maddox each week provides fascinating insights into the British and European world. The last 24 hours have been what, I don't think it's an overstatement to describe, tumultuous. It can be said that the Prime Ministership of Rishi Sunak depended on it.
But just as here, I think we are sick of hearing about the voice and climate change. I think the Brits are sick of hearing about what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol. Most, I guess, wouldn't have a clue what it's about, except that it's got to be sorted out. In layman's language, it simply means Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Has Brexit released Northern Ireland from the clutches of the EU? And because it hasn't, Theresa May failed, David Cameron failed, Boris Johnson failed. Has Rishi Sunak succeeded in securing Ireland's removal from the EU? The other problem that Rishi Sunak faces is problematical. The king under the constitution takes his advice from his prime minister. But to have the king meeting at Windsor Castle with the prime minister and Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, does seem to be standing some sort of convention on its head. Given that this Northern Ireland issue hasn't been resolved, is the Prime Minister trying to give weight to his so-called deal by invoking the, invoking the King before the matter has been debated or even passed in the Parliament? Well, David Maddox is the political editor of Express Online. You can read David at, I'll tell you what, it's worth reading, express.co.uk. He always has the inside info on everything. Let's go to him. David, thank you for your time. Is Rishi Sunak's prime ministership swinging on this deal? Because my first impressions on what I heard and had read was that Sunak had achieved what Boris and others hadn't. What do you make of it? <laughs> there, 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 there is so much to unpack from the last uh, few days and... Uh, uh, it's very, it's true that his premiership was dependent on this deal. Um, Boris, of course, is waiting in the wings, desperate to come back. Uh, since the deal has been unveiled, Boris has been absent. He's been invisible, disappeared. Uh, and that's because he's giving himself time to see how this deal plays out, what the real poison pills are in it, and all the rest of it. But on the face of it, Rishi Sunak has got a much better deal than Boris did and a, even, a vastly better deal than Theresa May did. And it solved many of the issues, but not all of the issues. Yeah. Uh, Sunak has assured the Northern Ireland citizens that they will have their UK sovereignty. So Boris Johnson's Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is dead. But Rishi Sunak is saying that Westminster will be able to veto new European regulations outright, but Ursula von der Leyen is saying the European Court of Justice remains the final arbiter of EU law. David, which is it? Well, this is a problem. So there are two command papers on this. There's the UK command paper and the EU one, and the two appear to contradict one another. One, uh, this, this so-called Stormont break, so where Westminster gives the Northern Irish Assembly to vote to veto uh, some European law uh, is, uh, you know, it, it, nobody thinks it can actually be used, but but we will see uh, if, if it ever plays out. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, yeah, von der Leyen's uh, saying that uh, the European Court of Justice still holds sway in Northern mm. Ireland and will be the final arbiter. So... It mentioned sovereignty a lot in the document, but the truth is that actually European law still applies in Northern Ireland, so sovereignty hasn't been achieved. 
and this is where it may become problematic. Really? Really? I, I must say, when I heard all of this, I, you know, free flow of trade from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, that's all been established. I mean, the big issues uh, that the Northern Ireland Assembly would have this emergency break on new EU regulations, that was came out of that immediately. Westminster would have the power to vote, uh, veto EU regulations. Uh, now you're saying there might be some snags here and the democratic unionists mightn't approve. Yeah, they might not, uh, but it's interesting. I, I had a briefing over the weekend before it was all published from uh, somebody in the foreign office who said to me that uh, what they hoped with a deal was it would give everybody something, but nobody would get everything they wanted uh, and it was a question of whether all the parties, including the DUP but, and others, would grudgingly, I mm. think was the word, grudgingly, would accept it. I mean, I, on the face of it, I think they've done very well. They've got more concessions out of the EU than yes. anybody would have imagined. Yes. It's improved the situation enormously, but... Part of the UK is still living under foreign law. Oh, that may God. be too much for I mean, it seems to me, though, days. that the Labour Party are going to support it. Uh, the bulk of the Conservative Party will support it. Uh, most of the yeah. Northern Ireland politicians, uh, packed the DUP, won't. So it could get a 95% mm. vote in the House of Commons. Uh, why do you think... Yeah. Pardon? Do you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, so I agree why, with that. Yeah. why, when Sunak is under all sorts of pressure... Would he involve King Charles when there is yet no parliamentary vote, no parliamentary debate? Uh, there won't be any this week. The Prime Minister reportedly wants to allow MPs the chance to go through the deal. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has said it's constitutionally unwise for the government to involve the King in the deal. And the Tory Eurosceptics and the Democratic Unionists we've talked about have accused Sunak of dragging the King into politics in an attempt to sell the deal. So having made ground on one hand, is Prime Minister Sunak losing ground on the other? Yes, it was a terrible miscalculation, that was. And the word that was used for, uh, with me on Monday as this was unravelling was the word raging. That was the description of the Tory Brexiteers and actually I think some of the people in Northern Ireland. And the reason they've done it is because the unionists in Northern Ireland, you know, are very strong monarchists. They, you know, the, the king has a particular place in their heart. And they were obviously, it was obviously a crude attempt to try to persuade, use the monarchy to persuade them to accept a deal. Now, you know, they probably should accept this deal because it's pretty, it's pretty good. But uh, doing things like that just makes people suspicious. It makes people angry. Arlene yeah. Foster, former D DUP leader, was uh, on television that evening yeah. saying that they will come to regret it. And yeah. I think they will, actually. Uh, uh, I can say Buckingham... something. I mean, I think the late Queen Elizabeth would never have been dragged in. Yeah. Like I should say to our viewers, Buckingham Palace because this program goes all over the world, Buckingham Palace has been explicit in a statement that the King is meeting von der Leyen on advice from the government, and that quote, the King is pleased to meet any world leader. It is the government's advice that he should do so, which actually tips Rishi, Sinek, uh, Rishi Sunak into the bucket even further. Uh, 
just coming back to your point that has, do you believe, I mean, you've talked to everyone about this, has Sunak secured the concessions from the European Union, and you made this point before, there's something in it for everyone, but perhaps not everything for everybody, uh, has he secured concessions that will satisfy the major parties in Northern Ireland and put this issue beyond them? Certainly in terms of, I mean, the, the great symbol of this is the British sausage. So uh, under the protocol, the British sausage was banned from Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're not quite at barbecue season, but it's... Uh, uh, you know, you couldn't ex import meat from the rest of the UK. Uh, you can import medicines. That is all resolved. Yes. The problem now is that Northern Ireland can't export that sort of thing back to Britain. But it's, um, you know, I God. think a lot of the issues have been resolved. Uh, whether whether in the long term it's enough to save Sunak's premiership is, a, is another question because there are other issues to come. And this may inject some poison, some more poison just, into just, the whole, okay. uh, the whole kind of conservative. Just, party just answer this. You know. Just answer this to me. I mean, to people watching this, they're wondering what the hell this is all about because the United Kingdom does incorporate yeah. Northern Ireland. So, if there was a yeah. referendum and they said, "Right, we're out of Brexit," how do we have this aberration in relation to one part? of the United Kingdom. How did it come to this? So uh, it was a, a complete miscalculation and appalling mistake by the Theresa May government after Brexit, after the EU referendum, because uh, the EU insisted that we needed to sort out Northern Ireland first because it has a land border. It's the only part of the UK to have a land border with the uh, European Union, because Ireland is a member yeah, of the European yeah, yeah. Union. And in the end, uh, I think the Brexiteers are right on this. Uh, in the end, they were trying to use Northern Ireland as a Trojan horse to try to keep control of the UK, its regulations, its tax levels, and so forth, because Northern Ireland would be permanently excluded. Now, to be fair on Rishi Sunak, he's dealt with a lot of that. So Northern Ireland now can enjoy any tax breaks yes. that the UK has yeah, and so yeah, forth. Yeah. So that is a, a very good thing. But this is this is what it was all about. Um, if Theresa May had told them to get stuffed in the first place, then, you know, we might not be here. Right, but, um, right. After years um, of talks. So the, everyone, <laughs> everyone seems to be breathlessly awaiting the verdict of Boris Johnson uh, he seems to be mm. warning the Democratic Unionists about potential traps. Has Boris been hoping that a row over the deal would give him a route to take power back and return as Prime Minister? I think there's no doubt about that. And uh, he, he, he understood that, uh, that that could get him in. I think the problem now is that it's only going to be the real hardliners of the Conservative Party, uh, the so-called European research group of Brexiteers, but even not even the majority of them, the real hardliners in that group, who will oppose it. And I don't think that's enough to get Boris back in. That's why he's disappeared. That's why he's all silent all of a sudden. Well, just before you go then, OK, where does all this end up? Do you think that Sunak, through this, has improved the standing of the Conservative Party 
in the electorate. Uh, there's talk that Suella Braverman, who's lost her seat in this redistribution and is in a runoff for that backbencher Flick Drummond, and there's talk that her pre-selection may depend on supporting the Sunak Brexit deal. So Downing Street, by the way, haven't intervened at this stage to help Suella Braverman in that pre-selection, but she's one of the top ministers in the government. But already, as we said last week, a number of MPs have been deselected who are part of the removal of Boris from the leadership. So David, has Sunak gained some brownie points here? Has this improved the standing of the Conservative Party in the electorate? Yes, he has gained some brownie points, uh, certainly amongst his own MPs, actually. A lot of MPs who were critical of him have said he's done well. Uh, the question will be, we'll get the polls uh, later this week uh, in terms of the electorate. I would be surprised if it's has made a significant shift in terms of the electorate. And that, in the end, is his biggest problem. You know, 20 plus percent behind consistently week after week after week. Um, so, you know, and in the end, that may be the reason he gets removed more than Northern Ireland or whatever. You know, it's uh, he, he's got a big problem on his hands mm. because the Conservative Party support is on the floor. OK, good to talk to you, David. Always good to talk to you. Uh, it seems from what we've discussed tonight, the Prime Minister still has hands full. It's extraordinary stuff. David Maddox is the political editor of Express Online. You can read him. You get it all up to date. Express.co.uk. David, see you next week. See you next week, Alan. There he Cheers. is, David Maddox. You will recall that last night in speaking to the splendidly researched Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, Daniel Wilde, he warned that due to the Perrottet-Keen emissions policies in New South Wales, 138,000 jobs are under threat. Now, I repeat, this is thoroughly researched. The IPA team have been in northern New South Wales, along with Jack Bulfin, the CEO of this television station, ADH. And as the research proves, it's all very well to be teal and green in the elite suburbs of the capital cities. But as Daniel Wilde said, and I quote, many regional communities face the risk of being wiped out as local industries they rely on for employment and the rest of the country relies on for energy and food are to be destroyed due to reckless emission reduction mandates. Now, I've already made reference about this nonsense to Professor Judith Sloan. And I've warned about this for years and years. I've called it, remember, the National Economic Suicide Note. But then we do have a Liberal government in New South Wales that looks nothing like a Liberal government, splashing money around on almost anything. Add to all of that the voice and so-called energy policy, the mirror image of the Labor Party. And you know that they've learned nothing from the Morrison defeat. Indeed, one of the architects of that defeat, Yaron Finkelstein, is apparently on Perrottet's staff. What the hell would he know about winning elections? The one authentic Liberal who wiped the floor electorally with the opposition was Tony Abbott. This bloke won 25 seats from the Labor Party in two elections. Of course, the left will demonise him because they fear him and his own Liberal Party reject him. Yet the Liberal battler in Struggle Street loves him. Yes, there were problems with his government, but as every intelligent analyst of the time would know, he was white-handed from within. Even today, Abbott is the most formidable exponent of true liberalism in this country. I venture to say if he contested a seat in Western Sydney, he would walk in. Why am I saying this? Well, Daniel Wilde warned us last night that one of the great catastrophes we face is this business about energy policy and climate change. 
Tony Abbott recently addressed this climate change issue, speaking in layman's language, arguing that, quote, there was little point in reducing emissions in ways that drove up our cost of living or just sent our emissions offshore as industrial jobs relocated to places that were less environmentally scrupulous, unquote. In other words, investors don't have to put their money in Australia when nitwit governments think that they're going to save the world. Tony Abbott, like me, doesn't deny that climate change exists. And he cites the Ice Ages, where climate was radically different. He cites the Roman and medieval warm periods, when crops grew in Greenland. The mini Ice Age of the 1600s, when there were regular ice fairs on the Thames River. The climate changed, but he makes the point. All those changes were independent of any man-made influence, let alone under the influence of carbon dioxide, which apparently they don't like, but it's the source of all plant life. Sensibly, the former Prime Minister asks, how much should a country such as Australia be prepared to pay to reduce our emissions, given that other countries such as China and India will not reduce theirs in preference to strengthening their economies? and that nothing Australia does, he said, on its own, will make any appreciable difference, unquote. Tony Abbott is right when he said, and I quote, for years now, any discussion of climate policy has been poisoned by fear-mongering over supposed unique catastrophic weather, such as that creating last year's New South Wales floods. He made the point, though, that I've made many, many times, that, quote, while last year's flooding in and around Lismore genuinely was unprecedented, it's not really surprising that records do sometimes get broken. On the Hawkesbury, where flood records at Windsor go back to 1799, the four floods of 2020-22 were matched by the five floods of 1860-61. As he points out, at 13.9 metres, last year's flood peak was almost 50% below the all-time peak of 19.7 metres in 1867. And this is the critical point about the floods of 1867. They, quote, could hardly have had anything to do with man-made climate change, unquote. And then to the rank stupidity of the Albanese government, but supported by the New South Wales government and others, to cut emissions by 43% by 2030. Actually, the New South Wales government have promised to do better than that, hey? 50% reduction over 2005 levels by 2030. This alone should have them turfed out. But as Tony Abbott wrote, not only are they cutting emissions by 43% by 2030, but they want to, and there's a critical point, quote, cut fossil fuel power from more than 60% to under 10% of the electricity grid within eight years, unquote. Now, this is insanity. What's well, lunacy? Tony Abbott repeats what I've said previously, but forgive me, it bears repeating. To achieve this, the energy minister has recently identified that it would require the building, check it's on your screen, 40 large wind turbines every month, the installation of 22,000 solar panels every day, and the construction of 28,000 kilometres of transmission lines between now and 2030, all of which will have to be paid for via people's power bills or taxes. And while if it's achieved, this would deliver the renewable power the government seeks. It won't guarantee the reliable power that the economy requires, especially if all the coal-fired power is closed down in the meantime." Unquote. I think we're overdue for a dose of the Abbott common sense. 
because he makes the further point that Australia's 215 biggest emitters of carbon dioxide, which, as he points out, are also the biggest employers, will have to cut their emissions by 5% each year. I mean, this is Marxist stuff. Or they have to buy abatement at a cost of up to $75 a tonne. As Tony Abbott says, the government is likely to further deindustrialise Australia, and by taking the view that all new fossil fuel projects pose unacceptable climate risks, the government will gradually kill the coal and gas exports that currently earn more than $200 billion a year in national income and deliver the tens of billions in royalty revenue needed to sustain programs like the National Disability Insurance Scheme." Unquote. Tony Abbott alludes to a speech that he made in 2017, for which he deserves the highest praise addressing a global warming policy foundation event. Now, the speech can be found at tonyabbott.com.au. The former Prime Minister said then, 2017, quote, the only rational choice is to put jobs and standard of living first, to get emissions down, but only as far as we can without putting prices up. He said, after two decades experience of the very modest reality of climate change, but the increasingly dire consequences of the policy to deal with it, anything else would be a dereliction of duty as well as a political death wish, unquote. Tony Abbott in 2017. Well, the death wish now sits on the shoulders of Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen, and now it seems Dominic Perrottet and Matt Keane. Our energy crisis is man-made by those who call themselves politicians. Tony Abbott got it right when he included when he concluded, although the Albanese government got lucky when the coalition essentially me tooed its climate policy at last year's election, very soon climate wishful thinking will start to crash against the reality of blackouts, not being able to make things here, and even more expensive electricity, unquote. Well, we owe Tony Abbott a debt of gratitude for having the guts to continue to prosecute this case, knowing that the lefties will go after him but he'll be proven right. I've, war I've warned about this for many years and I've copped it as well. As I've said many times, governments might want to put our economic well-being at risk, and they are at the moment, but it's no reason why, should in why we should endorse their idiocy. I think we need more Tony Abbotts. Well, before we go, last night I spoke about how the big banks and Qantas are ripping off Australians. I concluded that Australia's corporate elites no longer seem to care about the average punter. Well, now Rio Tinto, one of Australia's largest mining companies, has joined the club. In its latest financial statements, Rio listed all revenue from Taiwan as from, quote, Greater China. The company wrote, quote, consolidated sales revenue by destination has been adjusted to classify Taiwan and China together as Greater China, unquote. So what's the deal? Well, as I'm sure you know, Taiwan is a self-governing democracy that the Chinese Communist Party wants to seize and control. In fact, just recently, the Chinese President Xi said, reunification between Taiwan and China, quote, is the historical trend and the right path. He said, Taiwan's independence is a reversal of history and a dead end road. He declared that China will use, quote, all means necessary, including, quote unquote, force to get their way. Judging by the rhetoric coming out of Washington and Canberra, Australia would likely join an allied fight to defend Taiwan if Beijing made a move. So by listing revenue, listing 
revenue generated in Taiwan as from Greater China, we must ask what side will Rio Tinto, a key producer of some of our most important commodities, what side would Rio Tinto be on if push came to shove? It seems Rio is trying to appease Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. Does Rio agree with Beijing's idea that Taiwan is part of Greater China? Of course, it's hardly surprising to see why. In 2022, more than 54% of Rio's revenue was generated in China. The Chinese Communist Party's state-owned mining business, Chinalco, is also Rio's largest shareholder, holding over 14% ownership. This begs the question, is the Chinese government telling Western companies like Rio Tinto that they won't get Chinese money if they don't alienate Taiwan and treat the island nation as a province of Beijing? Are Australian companies buddying up to the Chinese Communist government and compromising on their values to protect their revenue and profit? Are Australia's corporate elites so uninterested in Australian values and the well-being of our allies that they are willing to cower to an authoritarian regime that's willing to invade liberal democracies? And is the Albanese government going to do anything to make sure the companies that profit from Australia's resources respect our allies and our values? Surely these are serious questions and they warrant serious answers. I think a bit of real leadership based on national, not personal interests, wouldn't go astray. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Don't forget you can listen to the podcast of tonight's program from 6am tomorrow. Just go to the podcast app and search ADH TV. And remember, you can always email me, alanjones at adh.tv. As I've been saying for years, you are my best researchers. I'll see you next week on our extended program. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.